0: So the text comes from James 5 7 to 11 this morning. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we counted as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. As David mentioned, my name is Tyler. Thank you, sir. The service here is phenomenal. Um, as David mentioned, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors of Trinity Grace Church in Williamsburg. Um, it's a real privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, I love your pastors. Um, they've played a really significant role in my life. They've played a really significant role in the life of our church. They actually mentored myself and Robert, our other pastor in Williamsburg, as we were trying to figure out should we be starting a church, how do we go about doing that, so on and so forth. And so um, however indirectly or directly, I just want you to know that uh, this church has played a massive role in who our church has become. And uh, I am incredibly grateful to who you are. And uh, really, really a privilege for me to be here speaking with you this morning. Um, I also just kind of in an impromptu way want to begin this morning with a confession. Um, I woke up this morning just feeling unusually complacent. Uh, I woke up and went back to the words I had written down throughout the week that I prepared to share with you and just could feel the weight of their powerlessness and um, spent some time praying, just like, God, wake me up. I mean, we're all gathering here to pursue you, to try to hear from you, to open up your word. And I was just asking that God would wake me up. And I just kind of had this, I guess, like thought or picture come into my mind of what it is that we're actually doing here. And I realized that all of us are united by two things this morning. We all have in common that we have a need for God. We are a group of souls that have come together in this room with a need for God. And some of us are painfully aware of that need for God and are dying for God to show up in our lives in some way today. And we're here maybe as like a last-ditch effort. And there's others of us that are on the opposite end of the spectrum and are pretty unaware of our need for God. And even if we hold an intellectual belief in our heads, find that we're more emotionally moved by what we've got going on this week or our plans for the next weekend or the future summer vacation that we still have coming... But we're all united by this one thing, that we're all desperately in need of God, and that is true of us. And then we're singing this morning, and we sing the words, uh, this invitation of Jesus, come to me, all ye weary souls. And this is also what we have in common. And so I just want you to know, uh, as a guest speaker doing a semi-strange intro, uh, that we all have a desperate need for God, and Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, And uh, we have that in common as well, an opportunity to respond to that invitation this morning. So, with that in mind, um, as David mentioned earlier, we're uh, in a series called Into His Image, uh, where we're examining one by one the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit as they're listed in Galatians chapter 5. And so, just as one framing thought as we begin, Jesus says in Matthew 7 By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. So what Jesus is saying here is that the number one metric, the way that you will be recognized as his follower by the world around you is by the fruit that you bear. And I think it's important for us to note just as we begin that your life is largely a collection of ordinary days. I don't know if this has ever occurred to you before, but you're going to live a few extraordinary days in your life. Some of them extraordinarily beautiful and some extraordinarily tragic. But mainly your life is going to be a collection of the mundane rhythms and habits of your most ordinary days. And so when we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is what we should be bearing from our lives, what that means is that in the routine of your most ordinary days, the fruit that should be emerging from your life is the fruit of the Spirit, which is listed in Galatians 5 as love, joy, peace. And today we come to patience. Patience. And I, I would love just to define patience for us really quickly, because it's translated different in a lot of different English translations. Most modern translations render the fourth fruit of the Spirit as patience. But, but most older English translations call it long-suffering. And there's a reason we've moved away from that term. The, the Greek word for patience is most literally translated as to suffer for a long period of time. Now, what, what does it say about your pastor that he's on vacation and has asked me to come and speak to you about suffering over a long period of time? <laughs> but this is actually where we get the, the medical term patient. Uh, that, that term is meant to describe someone who is suffering patiently. And so, so what being patient and being a patient have in common is this, is that both require that a person come to terms with yielding control to another. So the definition for the spiritual fruit called patience is submitting oneself to the control of another. This is what it means to be patient. So today I just want to talk about this in three ways. I want to help us, one, come to terms with our need for patience, two, develop a biblical vision for a life of patience, and then three, how do we actually go about practicing patience? So we you pray with me? Respond to that invitation of Jesus to come to him with our weary souls, and hopefully somehow, His Spirit will meet us all where we're at this morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, um, who are we to so casually walk into your presence? God, who are we to be checking off another box along our weekly routine? God, who are we to be already having our minds drifting to what is to come later? We just submit ourselves in all of our weakness to you right now, God, and just say we all need you. We all want for you to speak to us. We are all to the best of our abilities, kneeling down before you and saying, we are desperate to hear from you this morning, Father. And so in that mysterious way that only you can, I pray, God, that you would meet each one of us exactly where we are, speaking to our hearts exactly what we need to hear this morning, Jesus. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. So first, coming to terms with our need for patience. Uh, we live in a culture that is growing in impatience through uh, convenience. Our lives are becoming more and more convenient. It's making us more and more impatient. Can you imagine living in New York City without a cell phone? It seems impossible. I don't know how people did it. Do you remember when you would, have, when you would call someone on their home phone, how weird that was? Hi, is Danny there? No, he's not. He's at Steve's house. Okay, I'll try to reach him at Steve's house. Hi, Steve. Is Danny there? No, he already left. Okay, I'll page him. I don't, like, what were we doing? Or, or do you remember uh, before email was around, we had something called snail mail, but it wasn't called snail mail. It was just mail because no one knew that it was slow at that time. It was like, I, I can send a document and it will be received somewhere in five to ten business days. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. How does that work? How many people are handling it? And, and, and then, have you ever noticed that New Yorkers run up escalators? I'm, I, I am guilty of this even when I'm not in a hurry. I don't know what it is, I'm just more afraid of holding the person back behind me than anything else. These are made to stand on. But the big loser in our culture's increasing impatience is blockbuster video. Because there was a time, there was a time when renting a movie was an event. And it was amazing. Do you remember when everyone would get in the car and you knew like when a new release was coming out and you would disperse and everyone would come back with like their five favorite VHS's that they could never find the right spot to return and you would go to that one wall where like Jurassic Park just came out on video and it was all rented out. Do you like, can you even imagine the possibility of a movie being rented out now? And we still, we spend the same amount of time searching for what to watch. We just watch endless amounts of trailers on like Netflix or Amazon before deciding what to rent and stream to our home. And because of factors like these, I think that patience can really easily seem like the self-help fruit of the Spirit. I mean, this seems like something that is important and that would make life better, but it's probably not on par with peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. I mean, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm in sincere pursuit of God. I'm attempting to orient my life around pursuing the countercultural way of Jesus. I'm actually trying to be in a relationship with the creator of the universe. And along the way of that journey, it would be cute if I became a bit more patient. (laughs) But James, the author of our teaching text, he actually has a much higher view of patience than this. He connects it to judgment, this is just a couple phrases you may have missed from the text that David read. It says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And then if that didn't sink in, he goes on to say, the judge is standing at the door. James views patience with the highest level of importance. And we all live lives in a culture of impatience. He's writing to people, living lives in a culture of impatience. We live in a very different culture of impatience, but it's marked by the same thing. The ordinary days of our lives are played out in a culture of impatience, and this has a profound effect on our spiritual life. And so I just want to share with you a few ways that I think this might be, this culture of impatience that we all live in, might be affecting your spiritual life. And the first is the virtue of productivity. The Western world has created a virtue that trumps all of those listed in Galatians 5, and it's called productivity. Now, what do I mean by that? In the modern West, we relate to time differently than any group of people have ever related to time in human history, and that is that for us, time is a resource that we spend at our disposal And so we all carry with us this inherent value that is how productive we can be. That's a quantifiable amount of work achieved in a specified period of time. And all of us, no matter what we spend our days doing, we know the good feeling, the accomplished feeling that follows a productive day. And we know the useless feeling that follows a day of unproductive toil. And I think that productivity is a good thing overall, but it has some unintended consequences that can creep in on our lives. And one of those is the obsession with success or accomplishment. David Brooks, who's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, recently wrote a book called The Road to Character. And his kind of thesis stated at the the beginning of this book is that he's comparing resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are those of external success, those things that relate to your doing. And eulogy virtues are those of internal character, your being. Obviously, no one would list their resume virtues at a funeral, and no one would rattle off at eulogy virtues in a resume. So these are sort of the two separate categories that define who we are. And Brooks, in the very beginning of his book, gives this confession. He says, Most of us would say that eulogy virtues are more important than resume virtues. But I confess that for long stretches of my life, I've spent more time thinking about the latter than the former. I think it's fair to say that he's not alone in that. I think it's fair to say that that's probably descriptive of quite a few of us. In James 5, our teaching text, sandwiched right between the example of patience in the life of the prophets and the example of patience in the life of Job, there's this one phrase that says, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Perseverance, the character of a person, is a higher value than success or what you accomplish. The resume virtues of a person, according to the scriptures. Second unintended consequences is that, uh, or the second of the unintended consequences is that we have a dislike of interruption. When time becomes a resource that we spend how we want, that means that we meticulously assign how we will use it. And when things interrupt our schedule, that's an issue. And we rarely envision anything good coming outside of our plans for each day. But that's a problem because Jesus' ministry was almost entirely made up of chance encounters with broken people. Have you ever noticed that almost every gospel account takes place while Jesus is on his way somewhere with a plan? Is something crazy happening in here right now? (laughs) David, I'm going to power through. If everyone's going to die, let me know, and I'll direct us to each exit in a timely manner. Okay, so... Jesus' ministry is almost entirely made up of chance encounters with broken people. He's always on the way somewhere with a plan in mind when he runs into someone interrupting him. And these are the moments that the gospel writers thought are significant enough to record and pass along that we would know what it means to follow Jesus. Even the gospel accounts that take place in the temple are always accounts of interruption It's always moments where they walk into a nice orderly temple gathering, and then someone stands up full of demonic possession and screams out at Jesus. It's always times where they're together to honor the Sabbath, and then Jesus is healing someone, violating the Sabbath. It's always when he's creating a massive disruption to the plan that people had. Jesus seems to love interruption. Jesus seems... Uh, to see interruption as the occurrence of God's arriving, the Pharisees always distance themselves from interruption. And so I just, a question for processing the role that productivity plays in your life might be, what for you constitutes a well-lived day? What for you constitutes a well-lived day? And does your answer match Jesus' answer? We live in a culture of impatience, and that also means that All around us is the glorification of results. Culturally, we've inherited this passive belief that achieving the desired result or arriving at the intended destination is all that matters. This is kind of the full expression of obsession with resume virtues. And so our identity is often rooted in what we can accomplish, but the desired result, the intended goal, the success we have in mind, it never delivers to satisfy us on the deep level that we thought that it would. And you know this from your life experience. You can think back to any stage in your life and think, what are the most memorable moments? What are the times I treasure from this phase in my life? And it's, it's almost never the things I accomplished. The goals that I set out to hit and then I hit them, it's almost always the unexpected things that happened along the way. It's, it's the course of things that happen within the journey that become our greatest memories, and the things that we treasure most, it's not the moments of triumph or success that we planned to achieve. And this is also proven in the life of Jesus. If, if the destination is all that matters, if the end result is all that God is concerned with, why would he come to the earth in the form of a man and live 30 years with no measurable success, accomplishing nothing, proving nothing, just identifying with his creation? It's clear that God has something else in mind than just success, but we crave success for self validation, and that does not leave us satisfied. Success never delivers the security and the identity that we thought it promised. We live in a culture of impatience, and this is lastly seen through immediate gratification. We want what we want, when we want it, and that is almost always now. We live in a culture of quick fixes. And it is impossible for this not to have a significant effect on our relationship with God. I think there's a reason the scripture always uses agricultural metaphors for spiritual maturity. For the fruit of the spirit coming in your life. It's because spiritual growth happens in seasons. It takes time. There are a number of variables involved. And it always comes through slow, committed, diligent cultivation. But most importantly... The farmer can never take credit for the harvest. It's always forces outside of the control of the farmer that bring the harvest. All the farmer does is cultivate the conditions for the harvest to take place. And in the same way, that's what spiritual maturity is in our life. It's cultivating the conditions for a spiritual harvest to take place. Our role is just to provide the right conditions. James 5.10 is an example of patience. says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord... Now most of these prophets that our text is referring to are people that never saw the end result of their labor in their lifetime. They're people who had delayed gratification. They lived faithful lives of cultivating the right set of conditions for God to move. And God moved greatly through their lives after they were gone. If we only have a vision for immediate gratification, we miss some of what the Spirit is doing and we do not cultivate patience We all have to come to terms with our need for patience. I think if you're honest with yourself, you'll see some of these things have crept into your heart and are defining of who you are, defining of the way that you play out the normal, ordinary days of your life, and are probably defining of the way that you pursue God. And they are for me as well. The ultimate fruit of impatience is what C.S. Lewis calls the hell of eternal autobiography. In his book, The Great Divorce, he depicts hell as an endless spiral more and more into the self, more and more restlessness and anxiety and fear and self-pity and self-absorption, more and more obsession with my emotions and my reactions and my circumstances and my interactions and every minute detail of my personal existence. We have a great need for patience, so we have to cultivate a biblical vision for a life of patience. But as opposed to just rattling off a bunch of ways that I think you should become more patient, every fruit of the Spirit is actually rooted in the character of God. We're told that this is the fruit of the Spirit because it is the character of our God. And so I just want to tell you how we see patience in the character of God and let you kind of run with what that means for your life. God is patient. And that means, first and foremost, that God is not in a hurry. The whole narrative of the scriptures gives us a picture of an unhurried and patient God. And we know and define God's love by his unhurried nature. This is 1 Corinthians 13, typically read at weddings, describing the character of God. Love is patient. Love is kind. A bunch of other things. Skipping ahead. It is not (laughs) self-seeking. It's okay. It's on the screen. You can read it if you'd like. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. I'm working on a time crunch here. I already used a moment for the joke about the bell. We've got to move here, guys. Okay, so (laughs) this is first and foremost a beautiful description of the character of God. This means that God is not reactionary. It says that he is not self-seeking. He is not driven ultimately by agenda. He is driven by compassion and love. This means that God is not easily angered. He does not hold a shifting view of you based on your most recent moral failure or spiritual performance or success or failure in your own eyes. And ultimately, this means that God is willing to yield control. Whoa. Willing to yield control. I was tracking that. I grew up in the church. That sounds outside of what I know to be true about God. But this is what we see in the biblical narrative a God who is willing to yield control. There's one example after another. Let me just give you one. Ancient Israel, after being delivered from the Exodus, demands an earthly king. God himself has by his hand visibly on a regular basis performed miracles to free them. He's led them to a land that he picked out personally for them so that they could inhabit. He's given them everything they need. He's delivered them from every other nation that would seek to steal their inheritance. And they get everything that God has blessed them with. And then they respond with something like, now make us like all the other nations. We want an earthly, invisible king. We want a source of power that we can see and know and point to. And this breaks the heart of God. This is his response in 1 Samuel 8. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. This is God speaking to Samuel. But they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them but warn them warn them solemnly not I'm sorry warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights God gives Israel what they want He gives them an earthly king He warns them of what it's going to bring but he gives it to them He bends his plan to make room for their freedom Our God is always in control but never controlling our God is not in a hurry. He does not coerce or force our hand. Instead, he freely and patiently waits for your response to him. Doesn't this seem impossibly backwards? But this is the patient love of our God. Secondly, God's patience has a purpose. This is Second Peter chapter 3. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God bears with us out of his love. God is patient not for the sake of virtue. God's patience is other-centered. It is directed out of love to you and to me. And so you are not called to bear patience for the sake of living a more virtuous life or becoming more stress-free or having a better perspective. You are called to patience on behalf of others. James 5, do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, right in the middle of a passage devoted to patience. Our patience must be others-centered. So before having the privilege of pastoring this church in Williamsburg, I spent five years starting a youth group in the Lower East Side in East Village. A big part of the start of our youth group uh, was that we began a mentorship program. This is not a designed plug for the announcement that Kristen made. It's just working seamlessly together. So we had a mentorship program, and uh, a close friend of mine named Kaiser came to me and said that he wanted to get involved. And so I paired him with a kid named Michael. I've got a picture of them together the day that I introduced them. took it in front of a colorful wall. Instagram uh, was not in my arsenal yet, so this is just truly what it looked like in the moment. So so Kaiser met this kid named Michael, and uh, they lived like five blocks from each other. And so they decided, like, are you sure you want to do this mentorship thing? Yes, okay, I'm committed to it too, so I want you to come to my house. This is Kaiser and Michael every Sunday at 11 a.m. Are you awake at 11 a.m.? Yes, of course I'm awake at 11 a.m. Don't be ridiculous. Okay, come to my house And we're going to sit down and we're going to do this mentorship thing. Great, really excited about it. My work here is done, Youth Pastor of the Year, and I made my way, I got out of there. And so then, the next Sunday rolls around. Kaiser, like, makes a feast at his home. This massive breakfast that involves everything that a freshman in high school could possibly want to consume. And he wants to make this thing really special. And he waits around 11 a.m., comes and goes. Michael doesn't show up. He's calling Michael's house. No one's picking up. The next week, the same thing happens. Kaiser's talking to me. I'm no longer feeling like the youth pastor of the year. What are we supposed to do here? We buy Michael an alarm clock. (laughs) Nothing changes. He's showing like one out of every four times. Kaiser learns what Michael's apartment number is, and he will walk there at like 1145 after waiting forever and buzz Michael's apartment repeatedly, trying to wake someone in the family up so that he'll come down and carry out the commitment that he's made. Now, this is really important. Kaiser works in advertising in Manhattan. His life isn't just full of free time that he has to give to anyone. This is maybe the one morning a week that he knows is free, and he's devoted it to this kid. And honestly, it's not being respected very well. The sacrifice he is making is not being met with the reward that he thought he would be given. But he never demands to be respected. He never demands a reward. He never demands a particular response. He continues to set aside this time for years. Here's another photo. This is Michael. He just graduated high school as a senior. This is him shopping for a tux for a senior prom. He needed a tux. He wasn't 100% sure what a tux was. And so he called Kaiser and said, hey man, will you help me? go and shop for this tux, and Kaiser sent me this photo, and I got it and was just like breaking down in tears by myself when I saw it. Because I suddenly remembered that just months before this I had been sitting with Michael in my office and he was talking to me about, I'm about to graduate high school, what am I going to do next? Should I go to college? Where can I get into college? How do I apply to college? You know, like, we're going through all of these sorts of questions about what's next and I'm just trying to get him to decide what he wants to pursue. And I said, well, what about this? Can you just pick out one person that you know that you would like your life to be like in five or ten years? And I'm thinking, like, I hope, I mean, he's going to say me first. But hopefully, like, through a process of elimination, we can work towards someone else. And he just said, yeah, uh, Kaiser. I want my life to be like Kaiser. What did Michael see in Kaiser? He saw patient, other-centered, sacrificial love. He saw that Kaiser did not demand anything from him, but instead patiently gave himself away. And this is the patience that we see in God. The patience that God calls you to is not for the sake of virtue or stress relief or a better temperament. It is for the sake of your family and your friends and your church community and your co-workers and your neighbors. It is an other-centered kind of patience. Our God is patient. And lastly, God's patience has a cost. The result of God's patience is not immediately being vindicated or proven right. Instead, it's absorbing the cost. Our subconscious metric for evaluating our world is so often fairness, not grace. Our reactions to situations we deal with are so often, am I getting what I deserve? Am I getting the right reward for my sacrifice? Am am, am I right or am I wrong? And thankfully, this is not the metric that Jesus used. Jesus, in both his life and death, ultimately exemplified his patient love towards his creation through his willingness to absorb the cost on your behalf and on my behalf. Jesus lived amongst his creation for 33 years. He never demanded what he deserved. He never lost his patience with us. Jesus submitted himself to the will of his own creation, laying down the need to be vindicated or proven right, letting go of everything that he deserved to demand of respect and instead patiently absorbing the cost on behalf of you and me. As followers of Jesus... Our standard of relating to one another can never be right or wrong, deserved or undeserved. Our standard is the cross. And on the cross, Jesus crucified, amongst other things, the need to be proven right. He laid down his life for us, knowing that some of us would never respond, knowing that some of us would never grasp the weight of the sacrifice knowing that some of us would never be truly grateful and knowing that some of us would never be interested in discovering who he is or what he's done for us. But he did not need to be vindicated. He did not need to be proven right. And so our ultimate act of patience is absorbing the cost on behalf of one another. This is the other-centered, unhurried, loving, spiritual fruit called patience Your willingness to be wronged and to absorb the cost without retaliating opens up the possibility for healing in the life of someone else. The Chinese missionary Watchman Nee wrote these words from prison. So, my brethren, don't stand on your right. Don't feel that because you have gone the second mile, you have done what is just. The second mile is only typical of the third and the fourth. The principle is that of conformity to Christ. We have nothing to stand for, nothing to ask or demand. We only have to give. When the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he did not do so to defend our rights. It was grace that took him there. Now, as his children, we try always to give others what is their due and more. Absorbing the cost is the most vivid example of patience in our world. And absorbing the cost is possibly the most Christ-like action that we can take. So how do we practice patience? How do we actually do this? Because after all, the, the fruit of the Spirit is lived out in the mundane tasks of ordinary days. After all, Jesus does say, By your fruit you will be recognized. Cultivating the fruit of patience in a culture that's obsessed with productivity and instant gratification and results is not easy or passive. It's an intentional move against the current that you live and work in. So how do we put patience into practice? I've got just a few thoughts. I'm going to throw them out unbelievably fast and then let you figure out how and what God is speaking to you this morning. Practicing patience begins with remembering our story. This is one thing that we do together as a church. When we weekly gather, the idea is that we together could come together to remember our story. We're set apart from the world with this one idea that our lives are not all there is, but instead our lives are a small part in a huge story that God is authoring. And when we come together weekly, we have the chance to reframe the picture of our lives in the middle of that massive story that God is telling. And as we do, the things that are leading to impatience and worry and anxiety and fear in our lives fall back into right perspective within God's plan. This is one thing that is, the Psalms are riddled with this sentiment of remembering our story, and I fear that we've lost it. They they say things like this, "'Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it is gone. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure.'" or I like the way Moses writes it in his prayer in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. When we come together as a church, we remember our story and we grow in patience. Secondly, build patience into your schedule. This is fiercely practical, but just find creative ways of building moments of returning into your daily schedule so that you reframe your life within God's story, not only as a corporate act, But as as a solitary act on your own as well. This could happen through practicing fixed hour prayer, just having alarms on your phone that go off throughout the day and taking 10 seconds to pray a prayer of devotion to God. It could happen through practicing a few minutes of solitude on every lunch break. It could happen through having checkpoints of surrender on your commute on your way home from work each day. Third, we have to relate to time differently. Because simply acknowledging that we use time as a commodity or that productivity is something that's worshipped in our culture doesn't free us from its grasp. Instead, we need a new way of relating to time. We need a new answer to what constitutes a well-lived day. And just a, a couple of suggestions. Maybe begin each day by praying, inviting the interruptions of the Spirit into your life. What if you began each day laying out your plans before God and saying, Now, God, this is all the stuff that I think today's about. Will you interrupt me with your Holy Spirit, giving me divine moments of encounter with you, calling me to obedience throughout this day? I bet if you did that, you would view the interruptions to your day much differently. And I bet that you would find that God is showing up in your life in very unexpected ways. We also do this by our action. We grow in patience when we care for those who do not contribute to our status or our success. When we give our time away to the elderly or the impoverished or the draining person or the annoying or the socially awkward, we grow in patience and we reflect the character of our Father. We do this when we practice Sabbath. In ancient Israel, Sabbath is that one day a week marked by what you don't do. It's the idea of remembering who God is and remembering who I am in light of that. And this looked foolish to Israel's neighbors. How are you going to keep up with this economically and militarily if you're resting while we're working? And in the same way, this looks foolish to our neighbors. How are you going to hold off the ambitious new hire who's coming for your job if you're resting while he or she is working? How are you going to keep up with the fast-paced world if you're resting while everyone else is being ambitious and pursuing? But this foolish act of Sabbath is a time of remembering. It's a time of returning. It's a sacred recognition of your weakness and God's strength. It's an elevation of the eulogy virtues in your life, not the resume virtues. It replaces productivity with patience. And then lastly, be patient in your pursuit of patience. Remember that this is fruit. Remember that you're cultivating the conditions for God to bear this in your life. Remember that if it doesn't happen by Wednesday of this week, that's okay. It moves in seasons. It involves factors that are beyond your control. You are cultivating the soil of your own life so that God can bear the fruit of patience. And so now I just want to give you a moment to reflect before we close. Maybe there's specific actions that God's calling you to. Maybe you're supposed to reorient the mundane tasks of your ordinary week in some way to make way for patience. Maybe it's something that I've said. Maybe it's it's something that God's speaking to you right now. But what is God saying to you? And how are you called to respond? Just take a moment to reflect. Jesus never asks us to follow him to a place that he hasn't already gone. And we have the cross as the ultimate example of God's patience. The cross is the culmination to a life of long-suffering. Our God did not remain in heaven and make virtuous demands on our lives and all of the unpredictable circumstances that come along with them. He came and lived among us and with us. The cross is the startling and humbling reminder that the author of the universe does not reign with an iron fist. He reigns from a tree. Our God is not a demanding dictator. He is a suffering servant. The scriptures teach that we died to sin, that we were baptized into his death, and that we were made alive in Christ. All in the past tense. Why is that? Because Jesus... As the ultimate act of patient love was crucified outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And I was crucified with him. And so were you. Our God is patient. He has given us everything as a divine act of sacrificial, patient, cost-absorbing love. And so may we, in response to all that has already been accomplished on our behalf, go and do likewise. Will you pray with me? Oh God, I pray and thank you that you patiently bear with us. Thank you, God, that you do not judge us according to our deeds deserve, but that you sacrificially and lovingly make way for us through patience. We pray, God, that that would not just be a comforting idea that we hold about your character, but we pray that it would become our own. God, we pray that you would make us patient, but not by our strength and our trying harder, but by the power of your Holy Spirit as we cultivate the conditions for you to move. God, would you bear the fruit of patience in our lives? And may this church look different than the world surrounding it by reflecting your patient character. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.